That's good, isn't it? To be inspired and encouraged by stories and examples of other people who are spreading the message of Jesus or perhaps what God is doing through them as they do that and hearing about their conviction and about the sacrifices that they make and the impact that their ministry has had. It is encouraging. It's helpful. Now, I know, uh, and personally for Ron and Michelle, I know that missionaries don't want to be put on a pedestal as if they're some kind of superhuman Christians in some whole different category to the rest of it. And that's good to remember. Um, They will tell you themselves that they are weak and as flawed as any of us. But hopefully their stories still are encouraging and helpful for us. But, you know, even more important than the stories of what they're doing is the motivation for why they're doing it. And the motivation for why we should want to be part of it too. Because without the right motivation, missionaries are just tourists. And without the right motivation ourselves, our partnership with them and our support and participation in the ministry that they're involved involved with will be weak and unenthusiastic at best or just non-existent, and they'll just come back every three years or so and we'll say hi and send them off again and they'll go do their thing. And without the right motivation, we ourselves will never even consider whether we could be the ones who should go across the world, across the oceans, across the continents to tell people about Jesus. And even more simply, without the right motivation, we're far less likely to even go across the street to tell someone about Jesus or to speak across the dinner table or across the playground about Jesus. See, if we hope to have any enthusiasm for mission ourselves, whether at home or far away, or any enthusiasm to get involved in it in any way, then we need to get our motivation right. And today on Mission Sunday, as I said, I thought it would be helpful to look at Jesus' great commission, which is these verses that we've just read. It's a good place to do that. Of course, the command from Jesus is there, and perhaps that should be enough. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go. But the motivation is there too. And so what I want to do is spend some time looking at exactly that. And so the first point that we're going to see is a motivation for mission that Jesus is worthy of worship. That is, by everyone. Jesus is worthy of worship by everyone. So notice how this Great Commission begins. It begins with his disciples worshipping him. They're confronted by the risen Jesus. He's risen from the dead as the conqueror of death. And so they do what is entirely natural when confronted by the risen Jesus. They worship him. Let me read verses 16 and 17 again. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When When they saw him, they worshipped him but some doubted. Now, we'll get to those last three words of verse 17 in a moment, but the first thing we need to notice, and the most significant, is that they saw the risen Jesus, risen from the dead, and they worshipped him. That word worship is, is, is about throwing yourself on the ground, falling on your face in absolute submission to someone who is worthy of worship. And when those disciples saw Jesus... That's who they saw, someone who is worthy of their worship, which is why they do that. They fall on their faces in worship of Jesus 
who is the ruler of everything up to and including death itself because he is worthy of worship. They worship him. But here's the thing that we're going to see today and that is that it's not just these disciples who saw Jesus that day who should be worshipping Jesus. Everyone should, which is exactly really what Jesus is getting at in the next verses, 18 and 19. Have a look at what he says to them. Then Jesus, verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. See, Jesus is not claiming the authority just to be worshipped by these disciples who were in front of him that day. Nor is he just claiming the authority to be able to command them and send them to go to make disciples, although that's true as well. No, he's claiming the authority over the nations that he's sending them to. That what these disciples know about Jesus, and so they worship him, that everyone needs to know that too. That the entire world needs to know, that every nation needs to know so that they can worship Jesus as well. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he commands his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that the first motivation for mission, for telling people about Jesus, is because of who Jesus is. And not just because of the people who need to hear it, although that's true as well. But the starting point is Jesus and who he is. I still remember the first time I heard this idea that that the primary, the first motivation for mission isn't just about the salvation of the lost, but about Jesus himself. It was from my Sunday school teacher. I wasn't in Sunday school anymore. I I'd, kind of... I'd, I was older than that, but I was in a Bible study group that he was leading and, and this came up and I was surprised because I had always thought that the motivation for mission was just that people need to hear it and for the salvation of the lost. That's a good motivation. That is true. But this first motivation is simply that Jesus is worthy of worship by every person in the world and so every person needs to know that. That's what my Sunday school teacher taught me. And out of that motivation and that conviction, he then went and became a missionary in Slovenia. See, Jesus is sending his disciples to make other disciples of Jesus in other places because he is worthy of their worship too. And so that's our mission. Disciples of Jesus are to make other disciples of Jesus because he deserves their praise and worship too. And that's true of the person across the street, the person across the dinner table, the person across the playground, and also the person across the world, across the oceans, across the country. And so as we think about our motivation for mission, I wonder if you believe that about Jesus, that the world needs to know how great he is that the world needs to know that Jesus is Lord and that he is worthy of their worship. So that's the motivation that the Great Commission gives us. But I want to take a moment to think about this a little bit more and particularly about the kind of authority that Jesus exercises, the kind of king that he is, 
that he is worthy of worship. Because I suspect that for many of us, we don't actually love this idea of the authority of Jesus as a motivation for worship. Perhaps we even balk at it a little bit because we don't love the idea of authority in general, certainly not absolute authority. We know that power corrupts. And we're all too familiar with the failures of people in authority or worse, the abuses of people in authority. We've had countless royal commissions that demonstrate exactly that. We don't love the idea of people in authority and it's certainly not likely to be the thing that we want to give deference or, or, or worship to them as a result of. But I want to suggest that the problem is not the authority. The problem is with the person. The problem with the people who wield it. And the difference with Jesus is the kind of king that he is. That Jesus wields his authority for the good of those he rules. In fact, just back a few pages, Jesus tells us exactly this about himself. He says back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, The Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the model of Jesus' authority, as much as we think of people in authority as people that others serve, the model of Jesus' authority is to give his life in service of others, for the sake of others, for the sake of those he rules. And that's what he did. He gave his life as a ransom for many. A couple of weeks ago, in the Christianity Explained, a group that is currently meeting, we were talking about this idea of Jesus' authority and that Jesus has the authority to call people to follow him. And one of the people in the group quite insightfully kind of mentioned, that kind of sounds like a dictator. Isn't that what dictators are like? They're calling people to follow them. But, you know, the difference between a dictator and a good king is whether they rule for the good of the people or just for the good of themselves. And Jesus is the king who actually gave his life for the good of those he rules. He's the general who steps into the firing line to take the bullet for the lowest ranked private. And so, of course, built into the motivation for mission that Jesus is worthy of everyone's worship is that, yes, people need to hear this for the good news that it is for them and for me and for every one of us, that Jesus is the king who died for them and that is wonderful news and we should want people to know that, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for theirs. Of course, that's part of the motivation and surely that should be part of the motivation for us to want to tell those that we know and love. We should want them to know this good news for their own sake. But I guess you could say that motivation kind of fits inside of the bigger motivation that Jesus is worthy of worship. So the question I think that we need to ask ourselves is, do I see Jesus like this? Do I see Jesus the way his disciples saw them on that mountain in Galilee that day after he'd risen from the dead? Do I see him as that glorious, that powerful, that worthy of worship because of who he is and because of what he has done, so much that I want other people to know that too so that they can join me and join us in in worshipping him as well. 
Because, you know, we do that kind of thing with other people that we think are awesome, right? We do it all the time. You know, I, I follow the surfing, and I don't know if you follow the surfing too, but the World Championship Tour is on at the moment. Anyone else following the surfing? One of my favourite surfers is John John Florence. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He's a Hawaiian surfer. I feel a little bit conflicted about it because he's not Australian and I want the Aussies to win, but he's amazing. And, I mean, last week he got this barrel that was, you know, I won't go into it now, but come and ask me later. It was, it was amazing. And, you know, that's surfing. That's something that doesn't matter. And I still love talking to people about it and telling people about it and telling people how awesome he is. And I want people to enjoy how awesome he is as well. And we do that, right? We do that with, with celebrities, with sports stars, with movie stars, with singers, sometimes even with politicians. How much more should we want to do that with Jesus, the rightful ruler of heaven and earth who gave his life for us, who has conquered death and risen to life again, who is worthy of worship from every single person on the planet, if only they knew it? How much more should we want to tell people about that? So that's my first point. A motivation for mission is simply that Jesus is worthy of worship. Our second point is, I guess, really the flip side of that first point, that is that hesitating in mission comes from doubting Jesus. Hesitating comes from doubting Jesus. And this brings us back to those last three words of verse 17 that I mentioned there. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I don't know about you, but I find that really surprising and intriguing, right? You know, why is this here? Why did, why did they doubt? And why are we being told about it? Have you noticed that the Bible doesn't shy away from awkward moments? And, and, and that really actually adds to the authenticity of it. If I was going to make this story up, I would not have put those words in there, and I'm sure you wouldn't have either. And the fact that they're there is, well, it's because it happened, and we're told about it for a reason. You know, Jesus' disciples weren't kind of gullible, superstitious people who are ready to believe all kinds of impossible things without even thinking about it. No, even with Jesus standing right there in front of them, some of them were unsure. And that's exactly what John and Luke's Gospels also tell us, that even when Jesus is standing right there, he had to convince them that he was really there, that it was really him, that he was really physically alive, that they weren't just seeing things. Not because it's uncertain, but because it's unbelievable. These were not just gullible people, but they were ultimately overwhelmed with the evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead And so they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I just want to talk about that idea of doubting for a moment. The the word here really kind of can mean hesitating or wavering. And that's really the sense of it, I think. This particular word, actually, is only used one other place in the whole Bible. And in fact, it's right here in Matthew's Gospel, a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 14, when Jesus is walking on the water. You know... That, that moment when, when Jesus is walking on the water, so his disciples are in a boat and they see Jesus walking across the water towards them and, and Peter sees him and is, and is convicted to, to kind of go out to him on the water and he says, if that's really you, Jesus, call me to, to come out to you. 
And Jesus does. And so Peter does. He steps out of the boat and starts walking on the water for a bit. But perhaps you know what happens next because then he saw something else. He saw Jesus, but then he also saw the wind and kind of whipping up the waves around him and the fact that there was nothing between him and the water and he was terrified and he started to sink. He hesitated. He was uncertain. He doubted. Yes, he could see Jesus, but he could also see the things around him that made him not want to trust what is right in front of him or perhaps better, who was right in front of him. And it seems that the same thing was happening here for some of the disciples who could see the risen Jesus. It's exactly the same word that was used back when Peter was in the boat. It's not the same as disbelieving. They just wavered. They they hesitated. And I know that can be the same for us. Christians are people who believe what these disciples saw, that Jesus really did rise from the dead, even though we didn't see it ourselves. But just like some of them, we can also hesitate and, and, and doubt even what we know to be true, like they did even when Jesus was standing right in front of them, and like Peter did even when he could see Jesus, but he could also see the wind whipping up the waves around him. And that hesitating, I guess you could say, it waters down our worship because it takes our eyes off Jesus. Do you see the contrast there? Some, they worshipped, but some doubted. The doubt waters down our worship. It's not the same as disbelief, as I said. We just hesitate between yes and and no, or yes and, and maybe. And of course, that causes problems in our own faith, in our own trying to live the life of trusting Jesus. But it also causes problems in our motivation for mission. It will make us hesitate in mission. Kind of committed to it, but then also kind of not. Because we don't have a clear vision ourselves of just how worthy of worship Jesus is for me, let alone for the people that I should want to be telling about it. For every other person in the world. And so, as I said, this kind of hesitating, it waters down our worship of Jesus and so makes us less enthusiastic to then tell others. And so, again, a question to ask ourselves is, if your commitment to mission is low, if your commitment to mission is low, could that be because we are hesitant in our own worship of Jesus? Now, in one sense, that's entirely understandable. Because there are lots of things that could make us hesitate or or distract our attention and water down our worship and and so make us less enthusiastic to tell people. It's not a popular message, we know that. Everyone tells us that we are stupid for believing it. Some people even tell us that we are evil for wanting others to come follow Jesus along with us. It's hard to live for Jesus and not just for myself. Telling people about Jesus often costs us. It might cost us a friend. It might cost us embarrassment. It might cost us a job or money or all kinds of things. But with all those challenges and difficulties, there is one final encouragement that Jesus leaves us with to help us in the mission that he gives us. 
And this is our last point, and we're going to look at it just briefly. It's the last words in the, in the whole book, actually, of Matthew. Our reason for confidence in mission is that Jesus is with us. I am with you. Let me read those last words, verse 20. And surely, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just this January just passed, our family went up to Katoomba for a missionary conference for CMS Summer School and there were lots of speakers and missionaries talking about various things, about what they're doing and some of the challenges and encouragements that they face. And one comment that one speaker made really kind of stuck with me. He commented that missionaries often get told, I could never do what you do. And Ron and Michelle are telling me they hear that all the time, right? I could never do what you do. And partly people say that as meant to be an encouragement, like good on you. But what he said was that the response that he always wants to make and that missionaries always want to make is, no, we can't do it either. We're not superhuman. I feel just as weak and powerless as you, but I know that Jesus is with me by the power of his spirit, just as he promised. Surely I'm with you always. That's the promise that Jesus leaves us with as he sends us on his mission. And it's a promise for each one of us, whether we are going to far-off places ourselves or staying in support of those who go and when we cross the street to speak to someone about Jesus or speak across the the dining table or across the playground. Jesus is with you. And haven't we heard great testimony about that already from Ron and Michelle, and I'm sure we'll continue to on Wednesday. He is with you as you make sacrifices you know, of time, of money, or, or of leaving behind loved ones. Jesus is with you. As you face opposition, whether it's in a tribal village in the Philippines or in the schoolyard or in the workplace, from people who don't like what you have to say or who don't want you to say it to anyone else, who want you to be quiet entirely, Jesus is with you. Or as you feel ineffective or just scared when it feels like there are more defeats than victories and you're nervous and hesitant, Jesus is with you. That's his promise to us. Jesus has left us with a job to do and he himself is the motivation for us to do it. If only we would see ourselves just how worthy of worship he is so that we want others to come and worship him with us. And he has given us the confidence that he is with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus all the more clearly. We want to love him all the more dearly. We want to trust him all the more fully. We want to worship him all the more purely. And so we ask, Father, that you will increase in our hearts and minds a vision of just how worthy of worship Jesus is, that he truly is the Lord of heaven and earth, and so that we want others to come and worship him with us for their sake as well as for his And Father, we ask that you will uh, help us to put away any kind of hesitation or wavering in our own worship of Jesus and so also any kind of hesitating and wavering in our own involvement in his mission. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.